The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. You can be seated. A reading from the book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free, free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithrida, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a thousand bases of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. The word of the Lord.
The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the Lord. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael, who said to him, We have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do join with Nathaniel this morning, proclaiming and acknowledging that you are our rabbi, our teacher. You are the Son of God. You are the King of all things. We thank you, Lord, that you are present here with us. We pray, Rabbi, that you would teach us this morning. Grow us in the knowledge of you, we pray, and through your Spirit, make us more and more like you. We offer these prayers in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. And you can be seated. I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's had uh, this experience in a time of uh, celebration, of rejoicing, when it seems like you know, everything is just going right, things are falling into place, um, you have both a feeling of gratitude and a feeling of joy, but alongside that, maybe a, a slight, maybe sometimes not a slight, feeling of dread and anxiety. That feeling that says, you're celebrating now, but what's next, right? This is great what's happening, but things can only get worse from here. 
I realize that's very much the definition of pessimism, but I think even optimists, and I consider myself mostly an optimist, at times have those moments, right? Where we just sort of think like, can I really enjoy this? And I just know, right, that there likely may be troubles around the corner. I had a sort of a strange experience of desire um, uh, not long after Church of the Cross uh, began, where I found myself thinking about how nice it would be to retire. Um, I was younger than 40. Pastors usually don't retire at young ages um, in our line of work. And um, it was strange that I was feeling that way because, again, things were going very well at Church of the Cross. There were all sorts of answered prayers we were experiencing and, and people that were getting involved and, and helping um, in the leadership of the church. But I realized the reason I felt that way is I was thinking, hey, I know there's going to be hard things to come, right? There'll be conflict that we'll have to deal with. There'll be growing pains that we'll have to deal with. How nice it would be if I could just retire right now and just miss all of that. It's a little bit like um, uh, Peter and James and John. If you remember when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured before them, his glory shines out. And actually Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus. And Peter says, this is great. Let's build shelters. Right, let's build some little houses and we can just stay up here. Right, no, no doubt Peter was thinking, look, you know, Jesus keeps talking about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die, but we can stay in this moment. Right? We don't need to go down from the mountain. Let's just stay in the glory and avoid the difficulties. Well, today we're um, beginning a series in um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books that very much go together. We'll be in Ezra, Ezra first, and then in Nehemiah, we'll be in this series through the season of Epiphany and into the season of Lent. Um, and we start, of course, with the first chapter of Ezra and this major high point, right? A huge moment in the nation of Israel's history and a huge answer to prayer, a huge blessing. That Cyrus, right, the, the king of Persia, Persia has now basically overtaken Babylon and now is the, you know, the people group, the country that is overseeing the Jewish people. That Cyrus, right, announces, you can go home. I'm sending you home. Not only am I sending you home, I'm sending you back to Jerusalem, back to Judah. The people of Judah are being sent back to rebuild your temple. And I'm giving you financial provision to do it. Right? An incredible moment of celebration and joy and an answer, again, to prayer. Right? But maybe we read this and we think, yeah, but things are going to get hard. Right? They're going to get difficult. If you're familiar at all with Ezra and Nehemiah, and again, we'll be spending time in those books. Right? A major theme of those two books is actually how do you remain faithful to the Lord and to his calling and to his commandments in the midst of adversity? in the midst of challenges to your face, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of enemies actually wanting to destroy you. And so we start at this high point, but again, we know their difficulties, their challenges coming. Not only that, though, even as we read Ezra and then we read the Gospels, right, we see the challenges that are going to come in the long term, right, for the people of Judah as they settle in the promised land or settle back in the promised land, right, under different ruling bodies over them. For instance, actually, as we read Ezra, we see this is what a scribe, a teacher of the law, is called to do. Ezra actually doesn't show up until like 80 years uh, later after this moment, but obviously he's an important person to the book of Ezra. And Ezra is a teacher of the law. And we see him teaching the people so that they grow in the knowledge of the Lord and grow in obedience to him. But yet when we get to the Gospels, most of the time, teachers of the law are actually those who are resisting Jesus who actually aren't caring for the people, but putting burdens on the people, 
So there's some sorrow um, that we can feel as we read about Ezra and think, ah, that's the way the teachers of the law should have remained, right? If only they had stayed like Ezra with the heart of Ezra. I want to suggest, again, as we look um, at this passage, right, it shouldn't fill us with dread. It shouldn't fill us with anxiety, even though we know trouble and difficulties are coming. But it should fill us with hope. Because when we see very clearly in this passage, as we see throughout the scriptures, right, that God makes a way for his people in fulfillment of his promises. Right, so that's the three parts of my sermon. All right, if you take notes, right? So God makes a way, one, for his people, two, in fulfillment of his promises. And yes, I stole uh, my wording uh, from a song um, that we'll sing uh, during communion, a song I love. And so I want to consider this, right, and how this gives us hope. How whether we are anticipating great things to come or whether we're anticipating hard things to come or whether we don't know what's to come, which is always true, we know that God will make a way for us, right, for his people, that he will keep his promises and fulfill his promises. And so um, let's look at this uh, passage. And actually, I want to start with uh, sort of the end and work backwards. I want to start with God fulfills his promises, right, because this is where uh, we begin in this passage. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, right? God fulfills, right, what he has spoken. And so it speaks of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had spoken out a promise and it's being fulfilled at this moment. There's a few different places actually in Jeremiah where we see the fulfillment of this decree um, or the prophecy of this decree um, that Cyrus gives. We actually see it as well in Isaiah. If you're with us during Advent, we looked at a couple passages in Isaiah that clearly speak of the return from exile, right? That the um, Jewish people um, experienced at this moment. Uh, one of the passages um, from Jeremiah that it um, is likely referring to here is from Jeremiah 29, probably one of the best known, if not the best known uh, passage um, from uh, the book of Jeremiah, um, which I'll, I'll read to you a few of the verses from chapter 29, later in chapter 29, beginning with verse 10. It says this, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place, right back to the promised land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And sometimes in the prophets where you may read things and say, I don't understand exactly what's happening here. This is crystal clear, isn't it, right? Jeremiah could be more clear. The Lord through Jeremiah could be more clear. After 70 years, right, which many people, you know, take from the time of the destruction of the temple. After 70 years, you will come back, right? You will be returned to your home, to Jerusalem, to Judah. Now, um, as we consider this promise, it's also helpful to remember other promises, because right? some of the promises the Lord gives and gave to his people through Jeremiah and through other prophets were promises that they would experience discipline and would actually experience displacement and movement out of the promised land if they continued in idolatry. So even as we celebrate the fulfillment of the promise for them to return, we also remember there was a promise that they would be brought into exile if they continued. And again, section of um, Jeremiah, it says this, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, 
and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But then it adds this. After 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. So here in that, right, a warning, right? If you do not turn from idolatry, right, you will be brought into exile, but also a promise there. But Nebuchadnezzar, right, my servant, which is significant that he calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant, because we also see Cyrus as his servant. Right? We'll talk more about that in a minute. But Nebuchadnezzar ultimately will be judged. So even in the promises, even in the warnings, right, of, of trouble to come because of disobedience, the Lord still reminds them, right, I will ultimately judge all, right? I will make things right. So as we consider, right, God fulfills his promises, right? Sometimes the response to God's promises is repentance, right? Is sober-mindedness to say, ah, yes, right? God warns us, right, of the effects and the destructive nature of sin, right? But even then, right, we know God is a redeeming God, right? Even when their warnings, right, is for our good, for our sake. And ultimately, right, his promises are for restoration. His promises are to bring us home, which he fulfills those promises. Take note as well, there's an important uh, kind of comparison here. And there are a few places actually this morning where I want to bring out some of the comparisons and contrasts um, uh, you see in this passage. Right? It begins again with a proclamation from Cyrus. Right? Cyrus, king of Persia, said this. But it makes it clear that this is in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled. Fulfilled. So basically, Cyrus speaks, right, and things happen. Right? He's an extremely powerful king. He says he rules over the whole world. It's not the whole world, right? But it's pretty much the known world at that time, at least for them, right, the world that they were uh, knew. Cyrus has power over that. So he has incredible authority. And he speaks his word, and then he has it written down. And that's really significant, actually, that's written down. It's significant for one reason, because later they're going to find that written document, and that's going to be very helpful to the Jewish people, to the people in Judah, but it's also significant because we're seeing right away in the book of Ezra and in Nehemiah as well, the importance of the written word. That's a major theme we'll see coming up again and again. In Ezra, there are actually 20 different written documents that come from different officials and different kings and leaders that are referred to. And so you've got sort of the written word of authorities, of kings, of different political leaders, and you have a contrast then with God's word. And actually, in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a strong emphasis on God's written word. Right? That's obviously important throughout the scriptures, right? But where in the prophets, there's more of an emphasis on the spoken word. Right? The prophets speak, they proclaim, right? They call people to repentance. Obviously, it was written down because we can read the words of the prophets. But in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the importance of teaching God's written word. And like I said, Ezra's a scribe. He's a teacher of the law. He helps people understand the written word. This is important for us. Right, as we think of God fulfilling his promises, right, we can acknowledge right, there are many who have written words that have had great impact. Right? Cyrus says, you're going to return. What does it say at the end of the, the passage? They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Cyrus said it would happen, and it would happen. But even more importantly, right, God said it would happen, and it would happen. There's the words right, of, of political leaders and human leaders that can last and can bear impact, but there's the word of God, which is eternal right, and lasts forever, right, Cyrus is no longer king, but the word of the Lord, right, reigns, and uh, God continues to reign over all things, he is the once and future and always king, so again, that contrast, uh, very important, and we root ourselves, right, we root our hope in God's fulfillment of his promises in his word, so we have, again, the fulfillment of the prophet promises 
for his people. God fulfills his promises that he makes to his people. As again, as we look at this passage, one thing we can just celebrate and acknowledge is there still are a people of God. Right? There is a people who have remained, right? who, who bear the name that the Lord gave them, who know their identity as those who belong to God. And it didn't have to be this way. If you think about it, right, these people, right, the, the Jewish people, many, not all, but many of them are brought out of their land, and their land has been key to their identity, right? It's the promised land. It's the land God gave them. So part of their identity, part of who they know who they are is we're people of the land, right? God promised to our forefathers that he would settle us here, and we have been settled here, and now they're removed from the land, and they can say, well, who are we? We don't even know who we are anymore, and the temple has been destroyed, Right, there are people who are identified as a worship of God, right? By the sacrificial system and coming to the temple, right? Even those not in Jerusalem would come into Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem. So we could look at this and think, man, what, what are the people going to do? How do they retain an identity when they are removed from two key things that give them their identity? Right? Well, first and foremost is because their ultimate identity comes from God. It comes from his calling, right? He has not left them. Right? They may have been removed from the land, but God's not just the God of one land. He's the God of all lands. He has remained with them. He is present with them in that place. But part of the way as well that they have retained their identity is even in exile, God has given them a mission. Right? So there's a national identity right, that the nation of Israel, right, the people of Judah have, but there's a missional identity. Right? There's a ministry. Right? There's a calling that they have. And if they have remained true to that calling to be the people of God, they've remained, right, a people, right? God has protected them. Again, um, the words of Jeremiah, uh, the Lord gives them a mission. Even as he's bringing them into exile, he makes it clear, right? What I called Abraham to, to be a blessing to the nations, what I promised him that all the world would be blessed through him, that's continuing. That doesn't stop. Right? Just because you're in exile, that doesn't mean, oh, that ministry stuff, that representing God to the world, being a nation of priests, that's over. No, right? It continues. Again, from, this is from Jeremiah 29, earlier in Jeremiah 29. God has said to the nation, build houses and live in them. Even though you're going into exile, settle there. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where i've sent you into exile and pray to the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare right remember your mission seek to be a blessing in their welfare right as you build up the city right you will be built up now this is speculative Right, but we see actually in this passage that the neighbors, right, the people around the people of Judah give generously to them. Right? Give of gold, give right, goods, right? give beasts um, uh, to provide for them. Now, part of that is because Cyrus has told them to do it. Right? If the king tells you to do something, you should do it. Right? You get in trouble if you don't obey the king. I can't help but wonder if part of it is the people of Judah have sought the welfare of the place where they have been you know, landed, where they've been put in exile, and they've been a blessing. Right? So now that they're returning their homeland, their neighbors are blessing them. Right? That they've experienced that blessing, and they've said, we want to bless you back. And I think this is key. I think it's very applicable to us. Right? We're the people of God. Right? Not represented by one nation. Right? Represented by many, many nations throughout the world. But to be the people of God is to have a mission. And first and foremost, that mission is to bless. Right? Because we have been so blessed. 
And I think sometimes we think the way to protect our identity, right? And at times we may feel like we need to protect our identity, right? We live in a culture that's often very much opposed to what we most value, right? We are called, right, to live by the rules and the ways of the kingdom. And the ways of the kingdom often look very different from the ways of the world. And so sometimes we feel like I can keep my identity, I can keep my unique calling by remembering what I'm against, by remembering all the things that come against me, all the adversaries that I'm surrounded by. Right? And we are surrounded by adversaries, the world, the flesh, the devil, right? We have all sorts of places that we can experience temptation and difficulties. But when we remember, right, but my calling, my mission is to bless people, to even bless my enemies, to love people, to seek the welfare of the city, that protects our calling. That's actually where we realize, oh, there is joy even in the midst of trouble, because I'm actually called to bless. I'm called to represent God to the world. We are a a nation, right? A nation, again, among many, many nations. But we're a a nation of priests to represent God to the world. And we see that happening here, right? There's still, right, father's houses and Judah and Benjamin, right? There's still a a governor, a prince of Judah, right? He has protected his people. Now, I didn't include um, uh, the rest of chapter 2. We just have uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. Partly I didn't include that because I didn't want the readers um, this morning to be mad at me because it's a lot of names, right? Many names as you read, um, uh, continue to read uh, chapter 2. But not including that doesn't mean those names aren't important. They are in the Word of God, right? They are important. I'm sure you've experienced at times when there's a, a memorial service um, or a, a time remembering uh, people who have died in some tragedy, right? A, a shooting or a, a disaster of some sort. There'll often be a time where those names are read, right? And there's maybe a moment of silence after each name. And it's a way to say, these names matter, right? These are real people who we are grieving. Each one is unique, right? Each one is a loss. Right? And in a sense, right, that's what's happening here in chapter 2 and in many places in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Not that there's a tragedy, at least not in chapter 2, right? They're celebrating. Here are the people who went home, right? Here are the different leaders of the different houses, Right? But God is saying through those lists, these people matter. They're important to me. They're so important. Right? They are in God's written word. We're reading their names today. I encourage you, take a little time uh, this week. Read through chapter 2. And just think about, wow, these are real people's names here. And they matter to God. And I matter to God. They had a calling as the people of God. I have a calling as a member of the people of God. So again, God cares about his people. He fulfills his promises for his people. And then finally, right, God makes a way. And he makes a way through Cyrus, right, we see here. Cyrus is also uh, referenced um, in the book of Isaiah. And amazingly, in the book of Isaiah, Cyrus is referred to as an anointed one, which is Messiah, basically. Now, he's not the Messiah. We know that, right? The Messiah is Jesus. And yet Ezra is a type of Messiah. He's a a savior. He brings salvation. Again, not the salvation that Jesus brings, but he brings freedom from captivity for those who are enslaved. He allows them to go back right to um, the the promised land. And the Lord makes it clear, actually, in the book of Isaiah, that Cyrus has not submitted himself uh, to the Lord. He is not a follower of Yahweh. Matter of fact, it says this in Isaiah, the Lord speaking about Cyrus, I name you, though you do not know me. I equip you, though you do not know me. So apparently, right, Cyrus does not have a knowledge of the Lord or a full knowledge of him. Yet that doesn't keep the Lord from working through him. And it doesn't keep the Lord from speaking his truth powerfully through Cyrus. 
Cyrus says there in verse 2, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth. Now, it's actually not so surprising that he would recognize the God of Judah, the God of this area, the God of this people. Sort of the thinking at that time was, you know, different regions have different gods, and, you know, you recognize the gods of different people, and you acknowledge, like, in that area, right, in that part of the world, that God has a lot of power. That's kind of the thinking. But Cyrus is saying, the Lord, the God of heaven. Now, it may be that Cyrus is saying that because he knows that's what the Jewish people believe. Uh, What we know from history, from different historical documents about Cyrus, was he was a very savvy politician. Some people say Cyrus invented propaganda, um, that he basically had the mentality, right, and ended up being very effective, was if you keep people happy, right, the people that you rule over, then they'll make less trouble for you. And so if people want to worship their God, let them worship their God. Matter of fact, help them build their temples, help them worship their God. Matter of fact, we have one decree where Cyrus told people, go worship your gods. As you're worshiping your God, pray for me, your king, right? He figured, hey, it's good. Worship your gods, pray for me. Maybe those gods will help me out. And so there may be a sense here in which he's, you know, wanting to win the Jewish people over. But regardless, right, he's speaking the truth. The Lord is the God of heaven. He is the God of all things. And his truth is being proclaimed through a pagan king, um, through Cyrus, not only does he proclaim the truth, not only does he send them back, right, and allow them to return to their homeland, but he provides the financial assistance, right? He tells people, give to them. He goes and he gets the things that have been taken out of the temple, and he gives it back to them so that they can bring it back. It's such a picture of abundant provision. It also actually recalls the Exodus. If you remember the Exodus, if you remember as the um, people um, uh, of God at that point, were um, getting ready to to leave Egypt and go towards the promised land. If you remember, there's a a moment, it's it's just sort of barely referenced, but a really important moment where the Egyptians, the neighbors around the Jewish people, actually give of their riches. And they give gold and silver and all sorts of precious goods to the Jewish people as they're going out from slavery um, out of Egypt, right? Refers to as the plundering of the Egyptians, even though, again, the Egyptians gave willingly. Now, they may have given because they were so relieved, right, that the Jewish people are leaving after all the plagues that they had suffered. You know, finally, you know, like, go, right? You know, we'll help you to go because we've suffered so much, right, from your God. But the fact is there's an exodus, again, um, a recall that's happening here. Matter of fact, also later in the book of Exodus, when they begin to build the tabernacle, if you remember that moment, they asked the people, can you give of your resources, probably some of the resources they had received from the Egyptians, can you give those to help us build the tabernacle? And we're actually told that the people, the Jewish people give so generously towards the tabernacle that those building the tabernacle go to Moses and say, tell them to stop giving, right? They've given too much. We have more than enough. And those parallels, again, are important. As again, we see God's provision but also, as we recall, recall the Exodus, and that'll actually happen a number of times, and Ezra and Nehemiah will have sort of echoes of the Exodus in this um, uh, account. But as we recall the Exodus, we can compare then Cyrus to Pharaoh. Right? And we see Cyrus, and he seems to be a kind king and a, a wise king right, who wants the best for his people. Pharaoh was not that way. Right? I mean, Pharaoh resisted God again and again and again. We're told in the book of Exodus, he hardens his heart, God hardens his heart because he wants to be glorified through Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh lets them go, right? And then changes his mind and goes after them, right? It's not until he's killed that Pharaoh stops resisting God. And yet God works through Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh ultimately is God's servant. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. Cyrus is God's servant. And so the issue ultimately isn't, oh, how good of Cyrus, right? What a great guy. It seems like he is a great guy, right? I have a son named Cyrus. So I tend to like people named um, Cyrus, right? But it's about God's greatness, not Cyrus's greatness. It's about God making a way. He makes a way through Cyrus here, but he can make a way through any leader. He can make a way through any circumstance. Isn't that good to know? I don't know if you guys know, there's an election coming this year, and maybe you're feeling some anxiety about it, right? It tends to be anxious times, um, these elections, right? We know whatever our feelings about the election, whatever our desires, right? God's going to make a way no matter what, right? We maybe feel some anxiety. We should be engaged in the political process. That's good. We seek the welfare, right, of our communities. But the fact is we can also rest in the fact God's making a way, right? God will work um, through ever. God's at work. So whatever it is, right, as we begin a new year where you're kind of holding on to it, maybe thinking, oh, is this going to be hard? Maybe you're thinking there's a lot I'm excited about, but what could go wrong? Maybe you're just thinking, hey, it'll be another year, but another year maybe of hard stuff and good stuff. God will make a way. He makes a way for us, regardless of um, uh, the, the circumstances. He makes a way for his people, right? He will continue to call us. He'll continue to give us a mission Right? And he will fulfill his promises. I want to pray for that. I want to end uh, with a, a quote here in my prayer from uh, the second chapter of Daniel. Right? There's some overlap of Daniel's ministry and the ministry of um, Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll, we'll get to. Right? They had similar um, time periods. Daniel's interesting, of course, because he stays right? and does not go back um, to um, Judah, but stays sort of in exile. And yet God works through him powerfully in exile, which many other Jewish people did as well. Let's um, hear this prayer as we pray. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Lord, even as we experience the sun um, shining in on this um, Sunday in the season of epiphany, the season of light, we celebrate, Lord, that your light shines. Your light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. So continue to shine your light upon us, Lord, we pray. Lead us, Lord, in hope. And may we um, continue, Lord, to seek you, knowing that in you, right, we have our home. We offer these prayers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.